Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is their one chance to mold it and create it with the founders. So ask them, ask their advice. More from Heather Delaney later as we discuss the best and worst ways to start a Kickstarter business and get it noticed and what you should look out for when putting your money where their mouths are. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson. We start this somewhat special edition this week with the pick from the UK Tech News. Something of a global topic this week that concerns me and something you may not think concerns you. Specifically, the USB ports and indeed perhaps all ports on the side of your computer, your phone, your laptop, your tablet. Something is killing them. It's going to replace them. And it's called Thunderbolt 3. The bad news is that you may need to replace damn near every cable you currently own, every dock, every speaker system to plug your phone into. The good news, though, is that its introduction makes the likelihood of a future cable genocide somewhat less likely. It also means tablets like laptops and tablets can become thinner, smaller, and cheaper. You can do a hell of a lot more with them, this Thunderbolt 3 thing. And to discuss it with me is senior editor for CNET.com and at one point CNET laptop review lead, or words to that effect, Andrew Hoyle. Hello! You seemed like the obvious choice to talk about cables. And everything, in fact. True, but specifically cables. Wanted to discuss Thunderbolt 3. It's one of these difficult topics to present to a generalist tech reader or tech listener who's thinking, why the hell do I want to spend the next eight minutes listening to a conversation about a new cable? It's a good point. It's a very good point, and bear with me. This is a very, very, very significant announcement. It is one you definitely should be interested in if you use third-party devices, USB adapters, plugs, docks. Uh, if you connect your phone to your computer, your tablet to your computer, these, this new cable type may significantly affect you in the future. Should we go over a little bit what Thunderbolt 3 is? Yeah, sure, because it has been a bit uh, cloudy so far. Certainly in my reading up on it, it was yeah. there was a few questions I had, so maybe if you uh, okay. can give a summary. Well, let's let's give it let's give an example of some of the let's take a laptop as our sort of test case here because this is probably the device category most likely to be affected yeah. um, by a technology like this. Fundamentally, what Thunderbolt 3 brings to a laptop is a new type of connector. It's the same design as the new USB Type-C connector. We've seen that already on the side of the new uh, MacBook, the really thin one. Uh, we've seen this on the new Chromebook Pixel from Google. This is a new USB connector, but it's the same connector, or the same design at least, um, for Thunderbolt 3. What it does, or rather, let's, let's talk about what exists currently. On the side of a laptop, you may have, um, let's say, DisplayPort for connecting to a display. Yeah. You will have to a couple of USB ports for connecting to USB devices, obviously. You may have a power cable. And you may have something as well, like even Ethernet or something like that, some kind of networking. Basically, this cable can do all of that. It can do them all. Okay. You can 
imagine a scenario where you have a graphics card in your PC. Um, you can't add a graphics card into a laptop, at least not once it's been built. Uh, and it's not very easy to use an external one unless there is technology in the laptop, like a gaming laptop that supports external graphics cards. Yeah. NVIDIA does some of these for their, I think, Alienware systems. This connector also allows the connection for something like an external graphics card. It allows for up to 40 gigabits per second, to put it into context, USB 2, the current standard uh, for USB, is um, uh, 480 megabits per second. Sorry, that was off the top of my head. 480 megabits per second. This is 40 gigabits per second, this cable. That's a lot faster. What does that mean? Well, firstly, it means you can have two simultaneous 4K streams coming out of your laptop. So you could power two 4K monitors at the same time. You might not want to, but the fact is you can. And you could power one of them and have some other part of the cable powering something else. Goes into a dock that can power all your USB. All of your, you can pull power from it up to 100 watts. You can daisy chain those devices, can't you? Have something, have then something going out of a device into something else, which you already can. Correct. Which is the question I kind of have. One of the things that's a bit confusing because I already have um, a, I have a Thunderbolt darker, the Engato um, Thunderbolt one. I think you've got the same one. I've got one. I've got a spare one actually. Just, just as you do, there. just happen to In have our... a spare one, and that's running on Thunderbolt two. And so for me, that one cable goes into my into my um, MacBook Pro, and into that dark, I've got several USB three ports. I've got Ethernet. There's HDMI, um, and of course, it's powered. So how what, what's Thunderbolt three really going to be bringing? Other than just is it just faster? Is that the idea? It is faster, but it does mean that you can use other types of device. Like the one that you're using now, it actually uses the DisplayPort connector. It does. Mini DisplayPort specifically, or what Apple calls its Thunderbolt uh, port on the side. That's fine, but it still means you have to have a separate one for all your USB devices. This one combines those two things together. So it means that you do not need to have your your dock plugged into the side for one thing and then still have other docks for something else. There's enough support here for this to handle both your graphics which mm-hmm. this you know the current one can't do yeah and your usb and it can power your 4k monitor it can even power your computer itself um there's a huge amount of stuff you know it is it, it supports display point one point display port 1.2 which itself using adapters can support dvi hdmi vgi so again a dock that you plug in with this one cable mm. makes the all of these compatible so docking actually is a thing that really most excites me about this because i've been asking for many years why we don't have external graphics cards i've worked in various offices where you have docks where you literally just plonk down usually it's like an ibm it's a business machine you plonk it down your desk and automatically connects to the local servers and to an external computer to a monitor but I've always wondered why for these really thin laptops where it's designed to be mobile, you can't have a dock where you plonk it down on your desk, plug in a cable, and externally you could have maybe the latest Intel processor and the latest NVIDIA graphics cards turning your thin, light, mobile computer into a gaming monster. Because, I mean, you are, for just one person who I know, who has the new MacBook super lightweight, super small for traveling and for word processing on the bus or at the coffee shop, but you do also have a several thousand pound gaming beast purring away in the living room so you can play Elder Scrolls or whatever at full 4K resolution on your curved 4K monitor, which I know you talked about already. Yes. But you could not have, you could not need that tower and that separate machine that could be still powered by your Air or your MacBook, but with this external graphics. And yeah. that's what we could have, right? Uh, yeah, fundamentally, in terms of the the kit inside 
that makes that computer that computer if in a different case yes it yeah. could do that you can have your external graphics card yeah. but people need to make the external graphics cards but theoretically that could happen so that could really shake up the laptop world i mean if you just look at apple's range of computers you you're deciding now between the macbook the macbook air or the macbook pro if you want more processing power for say photo editing or video editing but you wouldn't necessarily need to make that decision anymore if these docks existed and could have external uh, processing power because you could buy the air thinking okay this is just like the middle it's lightweight and small but i can then come home and when i want to get on with some editing dock it to this dock and then it's suddenly got this extra power that you need for photo editing yeah. that's a massive change it is now there's a there's another side of this so we, we've established what this can mean for people in a very practical sense which is you can have your very thin light connection free little device like the chromebook pixel yeah. like apple's new macbook you get to work you place it down you simply take one thin little cable and you plug that into the side of your laptop that cable in the other end goes into a dock and that has it has your ethernet it coming out of it it has your usb uh, your existing usb ports coming out of it it's got your display cable that goes into your monitor yeah. coming out of it um it has your power supply it has all your networking maybe even your graphics card all that stuff just through that one cable that's yeah. the one side of this the other side of it is because this is the same shape externally on the device as USB. It means devices do not need to have one hole for USB and another one for your multi-purpose port like DisplayPort before now, like Thunderbolt before now, like Firewire even before now. So when I go on Amazon like I do and I uh, look for a hard drive and I say, okay, here's a three gigabyte let's see hard drive do i need to buy the usb3 version or do i buy the thunderbolt version you're saying that won't be that distinction won't be there it won't necessarily be there it basically means that a thunderbolt cable inside the cable itself is still different to usb right. so thunderbolt has can support usb like a, a much cheaper cable and that's why people will still make the decision whether to ship with a usb cable or whether to ship with thunderbolt based on does it need 20 40 gigabits per second of bandwidth so that's the advantage of thunderbolt over usb the higher speeds correct higher speeds and and, a, and more supported technologies that can go through it concurrently right. but the point is is that it means that if you ship if you sell, sell an ipod or an iphone you don't necessarily need thunderbolt for an iphone because you're mostly transferring just a few apps or even once your apps are already on there you're just doing updates and things like that so you don't need to ship a super expensive cable you just need a cheap usb yeah. or something but and, and the point is you can use exactly the same port so the benefit to, for a manufacturer of just putting that one port on on your machine is that you can make those devices thinner knowing that if you need the thunderbolt port you you just buy the thunderbolt cable if you don't you ship the usb and it fits in the same hole you would still need the computer to support thunderbolt obviously yeah but assuming down the line that all intel processors will then you know it stands to reason the dif the only difference is the type of cable that comes with it yeah. so you mentioned phones and that's actually that um, another exciting docking fantasy i have which sounds weird but isn't um to do with phones in that and i've talked about this before on on various podcasts and i've written it down in many different places that we're we're certainly we're currently in a time of having um sort of multiple screens you've got phones tablets you'll probably have a laptop and you may still have a home desktop as well but with things like uh sort of this new thunderbolt that's allowing you to sort of really dock devices in this way like i can see that your phone will essentially just become the brain and that is what you'll carry around and when you get to the office you will dock your phone 
into a larger screen and maybe um into uh wired internet or to and, and then to keyboard and mouse externally and then you can go home and you can maybe dock it into even like a laptop case basically to use it to use it like that i think that could be really exciting it's been done i think motorola tried that at the, one point the atrix yeah and, yeah was it the atrix yeah i think you're and right. also the um uh, asus zen phone but they did yes. it really poorly by essentially it's just a sleeve and it's not the there's no extra processing power being added there's no extra function all you're doing is basically just adding a slightly bigger screen onto your phone whereas with this you could you could be again like i was saying before you could add in processing power you could add in uh, external graphics you could add in uh, external storage um all going through the one port into your phone so your phone can very much be the brain of your computer still where all your contacts are saved all your data is saved i mean that's a concurrent development is do you do you ca- basically carry around the processor in your pocket and plug it in i think we would go a bit too deep down to the realms of things like well the architecture of an arm chip that's inside a samsung or an iphone is not the same as the chip that goes in a pc so the software wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to process the software on the chip i do know what you mean though and we may be looking at a new category of device that has a different software written in a different way that can do that yeah the other concurrent development going on is wireless and the fact is we're moving farther and farther away from wires in for a lot of our day-to-day needs and we, but we still need wires for for the really heavy lifting you know very fast data transfer but it's becoming more confined to offices and things like that like i finally untethered my iphone from my computer i don't need it there to sync or to back up or anything it never i rarely gets plugged into a no, computer never anymore. In. so you know that's already uh moving away but but a computer to another computer when we're shipping around 4k edit files when you are using one device between offices and you maybe have to very regularly back up a lot of data then something like this becomes for the the pros for the even just the the prosumers you know even somebody that just takes a lot of video or photo on their phone they're going to see the benefit of a 40 gigabit per second uh potentially fiber optic cable because they can do what they do with a lot of data a lot more quickly. Um, but the bottom line is that by effectively unifying the the Thunderbolt technology into the same hole, if you like, as, as the new form of USB, we are going to see the need to only support one type of hole on the side of a laptop for almost every function you need a cable to do. And I think that is extremely exciting. And although it might mean rebuying a bunch of cables for, for the next three years or so, it probably means we're really not likely to ever need to do that again. Because if we do, it'll be wireless. And if we don't, it'll just use the same hole. This is certainly the most excited I've been about cables. Me too. That's why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, there are a couple of write-ups that we've been referring to. Um, the one by Sebastian Anthony um, on Ars Technica UK is a great summary of Thunderbolt 3. Do check that out. Um, there's also a, a, a more Mac-specific one that I saw on MacRumors.com that's worth having a look at too. Or if you want to read the really in-depth stuff, which I tried to read a lot of today, Andy co- co- um, coincidentally tried and said, I can't digest this. Yeah. On Anand Tech is worth it. If you want to read about things like um super technical i forgot who i was after reading that yeah bi-directional dual pro- uh, protocol pci express and D- display port channels and things like okay. that that's who you want to read for that andrew hoyle cnet.com thank you very much thank you
Not everyone in the world is as beautiful as you, dear listener, and not everyone knows how to download a podcast. That's why I'm encouraging you to bring someone you know into the podcasting world by telling them about this show and which app you use to listen to it. You'll be helping not only me in text message, but all podcasters who often need word of mouth more than money to help promote their work. Thanks for listening, and hopefully, thanks for the review and the help spreading the word. Or if you want to be on the show, send your comments about this episode or any other tech topic. Podcast at natelangson.com. Now it's time to get on with part two of our two-part Kickstarter special. We had part one last week with Daniel and Max from 3Doodler talking about their success as a Kickstarter business, as a crowdfunded business, and what their plans are for the future, taking on the likes of Crayola. Do check that out at natelangson.com slash podcast. But this week, we are talking to Heather Delaney. Now, Heather is from Dynamo PR. She is a Kickstarter, a crowdfunding PR expert. She has been credited with helping a whole number of companies achieve um, a lot of success with their Kickstarter-funded businesses, including 3Doodler. And I wanted to talk to Heather to really go a little bit behind the campaigns. What does a good crowdfunded campaign look like? What are the signs of a great Kickstarter business? If someone's getting pitched loads and loads and loads of Kickstarter-funded crowdfunded ideas every day what are the things that stand out that say yes that's got the potential to get funded and to be a great product well i went over to dynamo's offices to meet heather and find out so um how do you start getting to work with a kickstarter project like do people approach you do you see something online and approach them what's that initial process (laughs) um yeah actually at this point i'm now turning down between 12 and 15 crowdfunding projects a week um, and it's very much them approaching us um, very lucky to say that we have a, a fantastic background um, and people recognize that some of the the biggest highest earners in terms of different platforms um, have a connection to to what we do so and obviously last week we had the three doodler chaps on which is one of the reasons we're talking to you is because you worked and still work on their kickstarter campaign mm-hmm. that yep that's correct so what, what is it that they're typically looking for when, when people come to you? So they've got in touch, you've pitched, they've pitched to you. What is it that they're actually generally asking from you? Is it just exposure? Is it advice? Is it, I mean, what is it basically? It's, it's actually kind of a mixture. So what happens is there's, there's essentially kind of two parts to, to crowdfunding. You'll have projects that have launched already um, and they're within the first 24, 48 hours, some of them weeks into their campaign and they've earned just a few dollars, um, maybe a few hundred if they're lucky. And then you have some that understand that they need the help and they need the support ahead of time. So they're trying to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row, so to speak. Um, so they'll approach us looking for a mixture of, of different different things. So it can be um, advice on the page, it can be social media, messaging, um, if they want help with um, testing out prototypes, if they're looking for advice on um, the product and, and if it needs any alterations. Um, I mean, essentially, I'm, I'm just a little kid and I want to get in as early as possible and play around and pull it apart and put it back together again and let them know what I think. And then there's the PR side of things as well, which is actually getting exposure, getting coverage, doing incredibly successful podcasts with highly well-known <laughs> podcast hosts, things like that. There's an element of that too as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So we are a, a 
kind of full services consultancy. So there's obviously the messaging and everything else. But I mean, PR is, is what we're known for and what we do. So it's making sure that we're on famous podcasts, um, that we're in different publications like Wired Magazine and Gadget, um, whether it's life, lifestyle design, tech, it's, it really is completely different based on product to product. And I guess actually you're able to, to track how much a website in particular contributes towards funding because you can just follow that user from, from, from click to, to backing. Yeah, it's actually, crowdfunding is probably the most transparent way to understand what, what PR is capable of. Um, so depending on the platform that you're launching on, whether it's Kickstarter or Born or Indiegogo, um, GoFundMe, you can actually see where the clicks are coming from. So you can tell that there's 45 people who've come in from your podcast and they have spent $20,000, um, which is actually very interesting. And if you haven't done multiple crowdfunding campaigns, then you're unaware as to what areas might actually drive the funding. And because it's so transparent, because you can see that it's reached its goal in 11 minutes as M3D did, or it's taken four and a half weeks for it to get there. Um, you really need to understand the audience and where they are because the internet's a really big place. Mm. And what does, a, what does a very good pitch look like? So let's say I've got an idea for a Kickstarter um, project. Um, what would get you saying, yep, 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 that's great, brilliant, let's work, let's work together? What are, the, what are those golden signs of potential success? Ah, so this is something that I actually help companies with that have launched already. Um, because they've, they've started, they're official, people can see it, and they're on their own. Um, and actually, you'll find that most campaigns, it's just you know someone in their basement doing it in their free time. They don't know who, who works at, at Wired. They don't know who works at San Jose Mercury News. Um, so they'll just email everybody that they can possibly get an email address for. And as a journalist, you're receiving hundreds and hundreds of emails every single day. So true. And if you don't recognize the person it's coming from, um, or if the subject is, I've, I've seen some subject lines that are just really, really long, and really awful, um, there's no way that you're, you're not going to be filtered. Um, and keeping it short. I mean, a journalist has almost no time to find a story, research the story, write up the story, edit and post. Um, I know people who are given 45 minutes on a good day to go through all of that process and have it out for the public to read. Um, and if your email is 16 paragraphs long and it's in-depth about you know, how many years you've gone through to, to produce this and you know, that your mother was an inspiration, it's, I, personally, I would just click right off and, and filter you out. So keeping it very short to the point is so essential. Okay. And obviously, I was asking what, what, what a really good pitch looks like, but what does a really bad pitch look like? What are the calling cards of just, this is a hopeless <laughs> idea? Because if you're turning down this many per week, yeah. obviously, I'm guessing the majority of the pitches you get are ones you don't want to work with or you can't work with for whatever reason. So what are the most common mistakes or common reasons for not working with a pitch? Um, I think in my point of view, there's a few reasons. So. A lot of projects, they just simply aren't ready. Um, they'll come to me with an idea. They don't have a prototype. They haven't taken a look at manufacturing. They don't understand production. They haven't even asked a friend who might have experience in that area. 
Um, and if you don't have that lined up, you're simply not ready. Um, that can take weeks, if you're lucky, months normally, to get that set up. Mm-hmm. And you have to consider that if you sell a thousand products, that can mean one factory. If you sell 30,000, that's a completely different beast. And the company that you were speaking with before can't produce that many. They're just not capable of it. So talking about some, some of the people you've worked with, um, obviously we, we talked last week about 3Doodler. Um, you've talked about M3D. I'm, there was, there's one that I'm very curious to talk about, um, which uh, I'll, I'll let you talk about, but I'm thinking about the wireless light bulb speaker system. Yep, Light Freak. And I'm curious about Light Freak because one of the things that they did very, very well, I think, was being able to have something of a viral video success on their hands. Um, and uh, how, how, how important are, how important basically is, is that awareness of what the internet can do for your business to that client? It's a slightly long-winded way of saying, do they need to know inherently how to make a product go viral by doing something daft on the internet? No, no, you don't. I mean, it. First of all, it depends on the product and the brand. Um, if it's a very serious company, then obviously a viral video would just be super, super awkward. Um, I mean, the video is probably one, it, it's the most important thing outside of the product being actually good. Um, and to begin with, it needs to be three minutes long, any longer than that. And there's a massive drop off, right? I mean, I don't have the attention span for an eight minute video that you know, shows grandkids playing with something. I, I just want to see the product. I want to see the founders know what you're doing. Um, and this, 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 the video you're talking about here that we're talking about is the video that sits at the top of your Kickstarter page uh, or on YouTube or what have you that is, is basically your elevator pitch, right? So, I mean, three minutes to me actually almost sounds too long. You know, I would, I would argue personally, if I was advising someone, I would say you want to have it between about 60 and 90 seconds and front load it. So three minutes to you is actually a, a, an acceptable length. Well, two and a half to three minutes is the sweet spot. Um, and if you can make it shorter, oh my, go for it. But you can get a lot of information into three minutes. And some of it, you might have very technical product that really needs to show it. And you want to have the founders explaining how it works, what it's capable of, maybe a bit of future gazing. Um, in terms of Light Freak, I mean, that was a fun video. And you happen to have a team that had um, a great group behind them that they were fun anyways. They were they were exciting and they, they had a, a nice sense of humor. So that's the way that the video worked for them. Um, if you have a very, very business-minded company, um, a bit more formal, then probably something that's gonna go viral won't really be your thing. Okay, so we have first first tip is be prepared on the kind of manufacturing side, just be ready to actually make your product once you've got your money. Um, You wanna have a three minute video maximum that is energetic perhaps, but certainly at least concise and not eight minutes long rambling, sit down conversation. Um, what's the what's the third the third thing that people should have in line? I was going to ask you for three essential tips for launching a Kickstarter. We've got two there. Um, what's the third that that you look for? Oh God, just three. That's that's actually tough. Okay, five. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, there's there's a few things. This video, unbelievably important. Um, having production manufacturing in line or at least prepared, very very important. Um, you have access to a community that wants to build a product with you. They don't want you to, to come at them with 
a final object and they don't really have a say. This is their one chance to mold it and create it with the founders. So ask them, ask their advice. Do they need it in different colors? Do they want an additional USB port? Do they want a mic included? Um, so use that resource because they're, they're very, very willing and they're very, very happy to be a part of it. Um, you can be very creative with the campaign itself and, and have limited edition pledges. Um, maybe get somebody in the community involved. I know with 3Doodler we actually had Etsy artists create a limited edition special. Um, and that was wildly popular. Um, so that, that was people in the Etsy community basically designing a special version of the pen. Creating a, a piece of artwork with the pen. Oh, I see. Okay. And what, what did the artwork do? Was that for promo? Was that for sale? That, that was a limited edition. You had an Etsy artist who would take the pen and doodle something beautiful for you. So you not only had a pen, but you had a piece of artwork that you could display in your house. I see, okay. Um, and t t let's talk briefly then about, about the pledges. Obviously one of the things that's interesting about Kickstarter is that you have that kind of base pledge where you can just pledge a dollar or a pound or something just to be, just to, as a as little hat tip to the project. But you can have a whole huge tier of, of price points and rewards and, you know, huge numbers. I mean, what's the, what are the sweet spots in that in that cycle? What if someone asks you what what tiers should I create and what should I offer my potential backers? What do you tell them? Well, it depends on the price point originally of the product. First of all, you should always have a one dollar pledge. Um, I mean, obviously, assuming if you're say Kickstarter in the U.S., um, if it's any of the other territories, it could be one euro, one pound. Um, but always have a one dollar pledge. Um, you'll have a lot of the community. I consider them power backers. And that means that if you look on their profile, they have a huge list of projects that they've backed in the past. It doesn't say how much they've given them, it just says how many. Um, and they, they will very happily put a dollar here and a dollar there at, at multiple different projects. Um, but to comment, you actually have to, to back. And a lot of people just want to say congratulations. Um, and a company can earn quite a bit of money with just a dollar pledge. Having a, a $10,000 pledge on Kickstarter, which is the highest level you can, you can get, is actually pretty good for a company. Um, it can be anything from meeting the team, taking a look at the factory, um, maybe it's getting a, a gold-plated version. It's, it's completely up to that. Are you getting, in, I mean, that seems to me to be the kind of thing where just a very savvy investor is going to drop to them an insignificant 10 grand to go and see if actually this is a company they want to keep their eye on and maybe try and buy in future. Yeah, if they're smart. I mean, I would do that. If there was a company that I was tempted to invest in, I would very easily drop that sort of money to take a look, to meet them, to spend the day with them. Um, but actually, you'll find that if it's an interesting pledge level, if it's you know, going with print, which was a, a Kickstarter campaign as well, and going to San Francisco and doing a tour of the city and taking photographs and spending time with the team, that that's just a great day. Um, but in between the $1 and the $10,000 pledges, you need to make sure that you've staggered it out. And that could be anything from, say, a 25 a 99 um, Again, it, dep it completely depends on the price point of the actual product that you're selling. You can have campaigns that are, are creating sweaters that are $35, well, it doesn't really make sense to have, you know, $10,000 unless you're making a lot of sweaters for that person, but... And um, just sort of moving moving towards our, our close um, here, I'm curious about how things can potentially go wrong or... 
I suppose I'm curious how people can get the wrong impression of Kickstarter. So there is an assumption to some people I know who think wrongly that Kickstarter is an investment. We've seen that go spectacularly wrong from a PR perspective with Oculus Rift, where there was a big fallout between the people who thought they were investing and it did very, very well and Facebook bought them for a huge amount of money and people, basically, they get nothing. Mm. They've got what they originally paid for, but they, they think maybe that they're investors and that they're going to get some sort of a return. Now, that's not true. How do you tackle that? Have you had to tackle that yourself? Actually, that comes down to education. Um, Kickstarter and crowdfunding in general is still very, very new. Um, the whole crowdfunding idea, most people don't actually understand it. So it's a lot of educating those that I'm speaking with. Um, and that's obviously the technology community are aware of crowdfunding a lot more than they were three years ago. I used to find myself explaining it probably half the time to people what crowdfunding means. Um, it's, you know, it's not pre-ordering unless it's actually reached its goal. Um, but you've got different platforms that are product-based and then you have investment like Cedars, for instance, where you can actually buy part of the company. Um, so it comes down to making sure that a lot of those first time backers that have seen Oculus Rift and they really like the idea and they want to get in on it early, that they're aware they're buying the product or the t-shirt, whatever pledge level it is that they're purchasing. But within that platform itself, you're not investing in the company. Hmm. To finish up, um, obviously Dynamo and yourself um, get a lot of pitches. You said earlier you turned down a, a huge number um, and you have a lot of success. But if somebody believes they've ticked a lot of the boxes that you mentioned earlier that are essential for getting a campaign into the stages where you could talk about working with them, how do they go about getting in touch with you? If they've got a killer idea, what's the best way to try and get you and Dynamo to work with them? Ooh, if you've got a killer idea, then just email. Um, I mean, you can take a look at our website, dynamopr.com, um, but otherwise email at hello at dynamopr.com. Um, very happy to take a look. The more you can send across for me to take a look, the better. Um, yeah. What should be in the first line of their email? Awesome idea. Okay, job done. Hello Delaney, Dynamo PR, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll be back next week with the final special edition of the podcast. We're going to be joined by a special guest to talk about Apple's WWDC announcements. This is because I'm not actually going to be here next weekend. I'm going to be at a heavy metal festival called Download. If you're there, do come and find me. Send me a message on Twitter at Nate Langson if you're at Download and want to hang out and talk about heavy metal and technology. The two do intersect, trust me. Um, but join us next week. We'll be pre-recording a post-WWDC show, talk about what Apple has announced and what it might mean to the UK market, but obviously being Apple, the global market too. I've got a great guest coming for that. Can't wait to talk to them next week and to hear from you on podcast at natelengson.com. Thanks again for your reviews and thank you for getting us to 20 shows. I'm extremely excited. Thanks for listening to Text Message, a weekly free podcast produced, edited and funded by me, Nate Langson. Don't forget, you can help so much by bringing someone you know into the podcasting world by telling them about this show and which app you use to listen to it. From the Corner Studio in my house in Ealing, London, thanks again for listening and for any help in spreading the word.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.